Good evening. Welcome, everybody, to our uh, Catholic education classes. This is our fourth week, and we're here every Thursday night. And uh, next week, we'll be looking at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and we'll pick up where we left off last month. The second Thursday of the month, we look at Catholic church history and um, some of the exciting moments in Catholic church history. And then the third week we did last week, we had beginning apologetics, where we explain various doctrines of the church and uh, make it easy to understand. And this week I'm very excited we're uh, talking about Sex and the Marriage Covenant. This is a book written by John Kipley, uh, founder of the Couple to Couple League. And um, he wrote a, a precursor to this book in 1969. And this second edition is from 1991. Uh, no, the first edition was 1991, and then the second edition was 2005. And... It is a fantastic book. We'll get to it in just one minute. Got to put an advertisement out here for my two books. My first one is My Gospel, and my second one is called More Gospel. Uh, More Gospel was just published about a month ago, and a lot of people are saying very nice things about it, so I hope you will purchase a copy of these books. You can get them both on Amazon. So tonight we're going to talk about sexuality, a Catholic view of sexuality. This is one of the most divisive issues in America today. And Actually, it has always caused uh, a lot of problems for people. The teaching of Jesus about sexuality hits very close to home. Uh, we're all male or female, and our sexuality is something that's in every cell of our body. You're either male or female in every cell of your body, and it is something that people get very passionate about, something that there are great disagreements about. Uh, lately in American society, we've had all this talk about homosexual uh, marriage and transgenderism and all these various uh, sexual issues, uh, contraception, abortion, you name it. And uh, people get very uh, uh, passionate about their beliefs. But a lot of people, I think, don't really understand why they believe what they believe about various types of sexual behavior. This book is just fantastic. I read this book decades ago, and I totally think he has put a perfect spin on uh, 
how to approach Catholic uh, sexuality. And um, so uh, I'm so excited about this. I am hoping that out there on YouTube, there will be lots of young people who can uh, watch this video and I hope you'll buy the book. This is a book that I really hope you will buy. You can get it on Amazon and that way you can follow along, you can reread it on your own. The, the knowledge we're going to get is from reading the book. I can add a few comments, I can make some illustrations, I can explain things that you might have questions about, but the knowledge really comes from this book. I don't claim to be the theologian that John Kipley is. He is right on target, and I couldn't be more excited about this. I hope a lot of young people will watch this. I hope you'll get the book. I hope you read it. And I hope you will form your conscience by the concepts that are uh, explained in this book. So, let's jump in. Um, I'm going to skip the introduction and we're going to jump right into the thesis of the book on page 7. The thesis of this book is stated here on page 7, and you may get tired of hearing this thesis, this one sentence, but this is what the entire book is about, is explaining and defending this thesis. The core statement. The core statement of the covenant theology of sexuality is simplicity itself. Quote, sexual intercourse is intended by God to be at least implicitly a renewal of the marriage covenant. Unquote. That's the core statement. It can be embellished slightly by rephrasing the last part of the statement. Quote, Sexual intercourse is intended by God to be at least implicitly a renewal of the faith and love and unreserved gift of self pledged by the couple when they entered the covenant of marriage. Unquote. It can be rephrased further in secular terms. Quote, Sexual intercourse is meant to be a renewal of the couple's own marriage covenant, a symbol of their commitment of marital love. Or, in its most secular form, quote, sexual intercourse is meant to symbolize the self-giving commitment of marriage, unquote. Secular phrasing is helpful for conveying the idea to students in schools where religion is not taught and or where it cannot be taught that sexual intercourse is truly a marriage act 
and is honest and finds its meaning only within marriage. As an aside, I want to respond to the easily imagined challenge that this concept could not be taught in an American public school because it might be seen as reflecting a religious belief. The response is threefold. One, most just laws reflect the natural moral law that has been codified in the Ten Commandments. So there is no difference in teaching that a man is not meant to steal from others and teaching that man is not meant to have sex outside of marriage. Two, the ordinary language of cultures all over the world, both in time and in place, supports the notion that sexual intercourse is meant to be a marital act. Any culture that has a taboo on adultery or sees premarital sex by engaged couples as less good than marital sex supports the notion that sex is meant to symbolize the commitment of marriage. Three, such basic non-sectarian norms of human behavior simply must be taught at every level and place of education or alleged education is simply not human education. And that, of course, is the problem with much education today. So the author, John Kipley, states his thesis in several ways so that it could be taught in a public school classroom. As we all know, you can't teach anything in a public school classroom that is explicitly religious. But the concept that sex belongs in marriage is not an explicitly religious concept. And if you phrase it in secular terms, uh, it can be taught in a public school. Uh, I happen to teach health class. I teach in a Catholic school, so there's, there's no problem talking about religion explicitly. But the textbook that I use is used in public schools all across America. And it teaches about abstinence from sexual behavior uh, before marriage. And it says it very plainly and very forcefully. And so it, it, this concept can be taught in a public school. But we're not worried about that here. We are searching for truth. We are searching for a Catholic uh, theology of sexuality. Marriage is the key. The Catholic faith teaches that sex is a gift from God even though that gift is frequently misused. Any reading of the Bible or even secular literature quickly shows how frequently and in how many ways men and women have misused the gift of their sexuality. Obviously, there's been lots of sexual sin. There is no direct biblical statement that sex is intended by the author of creation 
to be a renewal of the marriage covenant. However, we can arrive at that core statement by deduction. Absolutely. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are not mentioned by name. For example, the Blessed Trinity. You won't find anywhere in the Bible uh, a statement saying that there are three persons in one God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we call this mystery the Blessed Trinity. You're not, not going to find that in the Bible. But Christians all over the world believe in the Blessed Trinity. And it's the most basic teaching of the Catholic faith. We arrive at it through deduction. We hear about Jesus talking about God the Father. He's constantly referring to his Heavenly Father. We hear Jesus talking about sending the Holy Spirit upon the apostles at Pentecost. And Jesus himself is the Son of God. And in some places, we see all three persons of the Trinity represented at the same time. For example, at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks from the sky, the Son is standing in the river, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And this and many other places in the Bible, we can come up with the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity, three persons in one God. The same thing is true here. We can deduce from a reading of Scripture that sexual intercourse is meant to be a renewal of the marriage covenant. Back to our book. As will be shown in chapter 17, Biblical Foundations, Sacred Scripture condemns adultery, fornication, homosexual behavior, contraception, masturbation, and bestiality. Thus, the only form of sexual intercourse not condemned by sacred scripture is non-contraceptive intercourse between a man and a woman who are married to each other. I will use the term, quote, honest sex, unquote, or quote, honest sexual intercourse, unquote, to designate the sex act taught by scripture and tradition to be good. Mutually voluntary, non-contraceptive intercourse by a validly married couple. That's the only type of sexuality that the Bible does not condemn. That leads to an obvious question. What is there about marriage that makes morally good the same physical act that is morally evil outside of marriage? Or to put it the other way, if honest sexual intercourse is or can be a moral good within marriage, why is it evil for those who are not married to each other? Certainly, God knows that the degree of emotional love felt by unmarried persons is sometimes much stronger than that felt by married couples. Let's sharpen the focus a bit more. If Jim and Jane love each other, why is it the grave matter of mortal sin 
for them to have sexual intercourse on the day before they marry, but morally good for them to celebrate their marriage with honest sexual intercourse after they have married? So that's a very good question. You know, one day it's a mortal sin, the next day it's a very good thing. What's changed? Well, marriage. That's what's happened. And that makes all the difference in the world. The answer is that when they married, they freely entered into a covenant of God's making. God is the author of marriage. God created Adam and Eve and created them in a covenant of marriage. Human beings did not come up with the covenant of marriage. This is God's idea and God's plan for human beings in this world. Question. Yeah. Do we know how early humanity got married? Like the children of Adam and Eve, so on and so forth. How their, how their marriages were enacted? I just don't know if we know okay. it at all. You, you asked the question, how did the children of Adam and Eve get married? What kind of ceremony? What kind uh -huh. of ritual? Yeah, because, I mean, today we have... Right. Um, I don't think anybody knows that. Okay. Um, and I hate to speculate. Okay. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows that. They solemnly promised before God and their fellow man that they would exercise caring love for each other from that time until death separates them. They gave themselves each to the other totally without reservation. That This is what makes marriage so wonderful. Boy, that is the truth. That is the truth. Ann and I will be married 40 years this fall. And all that time to know that if I, like I had a heart attack, and she took care of me, and she did everything needed to be done, and now recently Anne has gotten cancer, and I take care of her, and do everything that needs to be done. And no matter what happens to each other, you always have that person who is going to stay by you and love you and nurse you and help you through it. Um, actually, in my book, More Gospel, I've got a great chapter on marriage. <laughs> it, it is that unconditional love. It's, um, it's just fantastic to know that you have that person, that no matter what, even if I'm in a car accident and I'm in a coma for the next 10 years, I guarantee you that Anne will not abandon me. That is just so awesome. Mm -hmm. That is so awesome. There is no other relationship like that in the world. Mm -hmm. You know? And so it's, uh, I mean, we all know sometimes parents have abandoned their kids even. And, and sometimes in this world, I mean, people break the marriage covenant and they do abandon that spouse, which is awful. 
But when you have a true marriage covenant and each party, each spouse, is completely committed to living that out, to being unconditionally loving toward that other person, that is just about the best thing on earth. It's just really, really good. And it's fantastic. And when you have marriage like that, I recommend it. Each person knows his own sins and imperfection. Each knows that the other has his sins and imperfections. Yet they give themselves, each to the other, in caring love, totally and without reservation, for better and for worse, for life. They become two in one flesh. This is why the language of the church generally refers to marital sexual intercourse as, quote, the marriage act, unquote. I mentioned this recently to a priest friend of mine that, you know, it's, it's a valid marriage is when you give yourself unconditionally to each other for life. And he said, yeah, it's rather terrifying when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> if you dwell on it, yes, it could be terrifying. But... It's, um, and when you look back, you think, what was I doing? But uh, it's the nature of love that it gives itself completely. Within marriage, the marriage act has the potential to renew this great act of self-giving love. With their minds and with their wills, husband and wife have irrevocably committed themselves to each other in marriage. To emphasize what they have done in getting married, I like to use the phrase, they have committed marriage. They have united their persons and their lives spiritually. Now, with their whole persons, soul and body, they have the right to express the oneness of their persons in the oneness of the full sexual union. Yeah. Every generation has their own language, common language, to describe sexual behavior. One of the common things said today by this generation is hooking up which sometimes you wonder just exactly, coming from a farm background, we hooked up wagons to tractors. I mean, <laughs> but these kids talk about hooking up. Well, let's go back a few years, back to my day. My day, young men, when they talked about sexuality with a girl or their girlfriend, they would say, oh, did you make out with her? Did you do this or that with her? And one of the phrases was, did you go all the way? Now that is a very good phrase. 
Did you go all the way? And by that they mean, did you have sexual intercourse? Did you do all that you could do sexually? It may be a common phrase, but actually it does describe things in a certain sense pretty well. Of course, you're not supposed to go all the way before you get married. Well, what do you do in marriage? As the author has just stated, you give yourself completely, you unreservedly, for life until death separates the two. You're going all the way, financially, emotionally, spiritually. You are giving yourself completely to this other person. And so, when you have gone all the way in all those other areas of your life, then it makes sense to go all the way sexually, to go all the way physically. Reverse it. To go all the way physically without making a commitment to faithfulness, to financial support, to emotional support, to a loving, caring life together, that's a lie. You're saying, oh, I love you completely and I'm giving myself to you sexually. I'm sorry. They talk about body language. That's the ultimate body language lie. You're saying to this other person, I'm yours completely. But you're not. You can walk away the next day and not even look at the person again. I was reading uh, about the hookup culture and a, a young 20-something uh, on a college campus said that she had gone out and had sexual intercourse with this guy that she met. And the next day, she saw him in a group setting, and he wouldn't even look at her. didn't even talk to her. It meant nothing. So it's, it's the ultimate lie. To say with my body, to say sexually, I'm all yours. But not to do it in any other area of life. And in marriage, when you make the marriage vows, when you commit marriage, you are saying, I am yours completely in all areas of life. Then it makes sense. Then it makes total sense to go all the way sexually. Two things need to be noted about the marriage act. First of all, it is a unique sign of their marital commitment. Of all the things they do as a married couple, this, along with its preparatory actions, is the only action that is morally right only for married couples. There are indeed many other acts that they do with each other that reflect their marriage covenant. Common meals, financial sharing, common living quarters, and literally hundreds of little acts of kindness. But these could also be practiced 
if one were living with a relative or even a very close friend. Both the Bible and the Catholic Church make it clear that sexual intercourse is intended by God to be a unique expression of love, that of marital love and commitment. That's true. I don't know if you ever thought of that. That the one thing married people can do that unmarried people cannot do, uh, morally speaking, is have sex. You can share finances, you can, you can buy property together, you could go on a vacation together, you could share time together. I mean, you could just do a hundred different things and it's all perfectly fine. It's not sinful. But the one thing that a married couple can do that an unmarried couple can't do is to have sexuality. Which also brings me to another side point is Sometimes the, Catholic, sometimes the Catholic Church is accused of being down on sex. Oh, you guys, you know, you think sex is terrible. It's just the opposite. We think sexuality is very good. It is very holy. It is very Christ-like. Our sexuality is one of the ways in which we reflect the love of Christ in the world. Through our sexuality, we bring new human beings into the world, made in the image and likeness of God. Our sexuality is so powerful. It is so holy. It is so godlike, so fantastic, that we even have a sacrament for it, marriage. It's an amazing thing. So just the opposite. We, we're not down on sex. We think sexual behavior is of the utmost importance and that's why you put restrictions around it. When something is extremely valuable, you don't leave it lying out on the table. You put it in a safe. You put restrictions around it so it's not mishandled. Um, a priest, I don't know who it was, but they said the most godlike that we ever are is in the creation of new human life. We, you think that's accurate? Absolutely. I, I would say the most... I would totally agree. I think there's a couple actions that come as close to being God as you'll ever will on this earth. And one would be sexual intercourse, whereby you can bring a new human life into the world. God created the first two, Adam and Eve. And then he said, okay, I'll let you guys create the rest. Mm -hmm. And how do we do that? Through the use of our sexuality. So it's a very God-like action. Now, it's we got to be careful. It's true. You don't create the whole human being. Yeah. We're body and soul. God creates the soul directly. Mm -hmm. But we create the biological part through the use of our sexuality. Joint so, venture. Right. Joint venture. So the, the word we typically use is we procreate. Mm -hmm. We create with God's help. And the other one, and you may not put it together right away, but they're actually very, very close, is when the priest consecrates the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. Those two actions, marital intercourse and priestly consecration of the sacred species, that's about as close to becoming God as you're ever going to be on this earth. And, they're, and I think they're very closely related, actually.
We'll talk more about that later in the book. He does talk about that in the book. Okay. The second thing that needs to be noted is that while sexual intercourse is meant to be a unique sign of marital love, it is not always an appropriate sign of love. For example, who could call it loving behavior on the part of a husband to insist upon sexual relations when his wife is sick with the flu? More on that later. It is an unpleasant reality that marital sexual intercourse may be far removed from the self-giving, caring love of their marriage day. But that does nothing to undermine the covenant theology of sexuality. On the contrary, it reaffirms it. To improve a poor marital relationship, a couple need to reflect on the marital meaning of sex. They need to see the marriage act as really being a marriage act, a physical sign of the caring, the tenderness, the intimacy, and the self-giving they pledged at marriage. They need to consider that their physical nakedness in the marriage act ought to reflect the openness and self-abandonment they offer to each other in their marriage covenant. Yeah. In a way, when you make those vows, you're putting yourself out there. It's like you're vulnerable. You're naked. You're, you're giving yourself completely to the other person. Married spouses understand, and some learn only through hard experience, that the marriage act can be experienced as a sign of intimacy, only when there is, first of all, a spiritual intimacy between them. Indeed, marriage is the key to understanding the mystery of human sexuality. Outside of marriage, you're not really understanding what you're doing. As I said before, it's body language, and it's a lie. In summary, we have seen that God has revealed that sexual intercourse is a good act only within marriage. And we have seen that out of the will of man and woman to marry, God creates a oneness, making it good for them to express that oneness in the one fleshness of honest sexual intercourse. What can we conclude except that God intends for their sexual union to be a unique sign, a symbol of their marriage union. The next question that arises is this. Once they are married, is the marriage act intended to reflect the caring, self-giving love the couple promised to each other? To put it another way, can a husband demand sex from his wife no matter how harshly he has treated her? Does the teaching of St. Paul that a wife is to be submissive to her husband, Ephesians 5.22, and that she should give him his conjugal rights, 1 Corinthians 
mean that he is entitled to marital relations even if he should be drunk and abusive? A lot of people have not understood those scripture passages over the, over the years. The answer is to be found in the context of each of the passages above. St. Paul also commands that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25. Is that not both a beautiful and yet very forceful statement that husbands are to love their wives with a self-sacrificing love? Furthermore, in the passage of 1 Corinthians, Paul taught that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. 1 Corinthians 7.3 In the strict sense of conjugal rights necessary for the validity of marriage, such rights are limited to honest sexual intercourse. That is, the lack of kindness and affection do not nullify a marriage, but the refusal to engage in sexual intercourse ever would provide grounds for nullity. So what the author is saying is that in Catholic teaching, to consummate the marriage, you have to have at least one act of sexual intercourse. If the other party said we are never not once ever going to have sexual intercourse that would be grounds for the marriage to be annulled because you have not given yourself completely and unreservedly to the other person now throughout marriage it's a different story once you have consummated the marriage the marriage is valid, then you have a lifetime of uh, give and take of like, when are we going to have sexual relations? And the author is going to talk about that now. However, in a looser sense, we can say that conjugal rights extend beyond sexual intercourse. Each spouse also has a right to affection from the other spouse and at a bare minimum, a right not to be abused. When one spouse acts against these rights, that person's claim to the right to sexual intercourse is correspondingly reduced. The point I am making is that within marriage, the spouses are called to keep alive the faith and the self-giving love, a caring love, they promised when they married. Perhaps the clearest statement of this continuing obligation to keep renewing their original pledge of love is found in the first and last sentences of Paul's famous discourse on marriage. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5.21 
and verse 33. From this combination of biblical data and personalist reflection, I believe that it is legitimate and even necessary to conclude that God intends that sexual intercourse should be at least implicitly a renewal of the marriage covenant. At least implicitly. What do these words mean? The words at least implicitly are important. A husband and wife are not required to intend explicitly that their marital relations should be a renewal of their marriage covenant. Having this concept of marriage sexuality firmly in mind can certainly give more meaning to their exercise of their marital rights and is therefore desirable, but it is not necessary. Explicitly means you make it explicitly known. We are going to renew our marriage covenant. Now, you don't have to say that every time you're going to have intercourse. Um, it should be in the back of your mind that this is something we do because we are married. What is meant by the words, at least implicitly, is that the spouses, either individually or together, may not act against the self-giving love they promised at marriage. What is called marital rape would be an example of one spouse acting against the marriage covenant. The couple mutually agreeing to engage in spouse swapping would be an example of both spouses acting against the marriage covenant. As we shall see later, contraceptive behavior is also a mutual act against the marriage covenant. What the author is saying, by the words, at least implicitly, he's saying you can't act against what you vowed on your wedding day that you would do. And there are certain types of sexual behavior that would go against that love that unreserved, caring love that you pledged on your wedding day. So that would be forbidden. That would be wrong. Number five, the Christian teaching about love. Before applying the covenant theology of sexuality to specific sexual behaviors, we must ask if there is a specifically Christian teaching about love that applies to the love of husband and wife, as well as to their love for their children and others. What Jesus taught about love was a doctrine of bittersweet love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5:44. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden light. Matthew eleven twenty eight. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke nine twenty three. A servant is not above his master, 
John 13, 16. The teaching of Jesus was not limited to words. His whole life portrayed the love of God for man. And certainly the love of one spouse for the other cannot exceed the love God has for that same spouse. And what do we see in the life of Jesus that illustrates God's love for each of us? Born in humble surroundings, fasting, overcoming temptations, teaching others and being rejected, accepting his suffering, and finally his passion and death on the cross. The point is this. There is nothing in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ indicating that love is easy. In fact, everything points the other way. So true. In my classroom, I have, next to the crucifix, I have written, sacrifice equals love. There's a lot of truth there. As we shall see, when he taught about the permanence of marriage, certainly a teaching about sexual love, his disciples understood the great difficulty implied by his teaching. And some of them wondered why a man should marry at all if he couldn't get rid of a bothersome spouse. Marriage is sweet, but the fullness of God's revelation that marriage is truly permanent as a dimension that at times becomes bittersweet, a burden, even if a light one, a yoke, even if an easy one. The question for reflection is this, is there any reason for a Christian to think that other aspects of Christ's teaching about marital love will not be bittersweet? On what possible grounds can the Christian argue that because the teaching against marital contraception involves certain difficulties, he can thereby ignore it. Should we be surprised if the teaching of Jesus Christ about marital love and sex contains the same element of bittersweetness found in his teaching about marriage itself? Yeah, Jesus teaches us that following him in many ways will be wonderful, but in other ways is going to be quite difficult, and that we may have to even sacrifice our lives as martyrs to follow him. And so the idea that some people have that there should be no difficulty in the Christian life is simply not according to to what Jesus taught and according to the example he gave us. Part two. This part here is about a theology and for our purposes uh, I'm going to skip that page. I'm going to go to the summary of it on page 14. Halfway down. 
In my opinion, the covenant theology of sexuality is relatively easy to grasp and conveys the essence of the theology of the body as applied to the marriage act. Call it the poor man's theology of the body, if you will. What he's referring to is John Paul II's great teaching called the theology of the body, which is very extensive, uh, includes a lot of different things, much more than what the author wanted. He just mentions it here for a couple pages. And, and uh, it's just more than what we were able to grasp at, at, in this course at this time. Any two people who are mentally and spiritually capable of committing themselves to marriage are also capable of understanding the covenant theology of sexuality and marriage. In fact, if a couple either cannot or will not understand or admit the elements or beliefs involved in this concept of marriage and sex, it is questionable whether their proposed union should be called a Christian marriage. What are these elements or beliefs? What the author is saying is that this thesis is very simple to understand. 1. God the Creator has created us loves us, and knows what is good for us. Two, God has created the human relationship of marriage and has told us that marriage lasts for a lifetime. In short, God's creative love has determined the basic rules of marriage. Three, Christian marriage is a covenant, and that is much more than a contract. The whole purpose of human contracts is to spell out the very definite limits of what is covered, and they can be changed by mutual consent. However, a covenant entails unlimited liability and promise. This has been traditionally stated in the marriage vows as in sickness and in health for richer and for poorer and for better and for worse. Yeah, so marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is unlimited. It's, it's a, a bond that you pledge yourself totally and completely to. Husband and wife, parent, child, these are the type of relationships where you will you'll do anything for that person. In a contract, no, it's spelled out. I will do A and you will do B. When you marry, number four, when you marry, you make no pledges about having romantic feelings about your spouse, either always or occasionally. Rather, you are promising to exercise self-giving caring love of the kind described by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind, etc. Number five, sexual intercourse is intended by God to be a sign of your marriage commitment, your pledge of self-giving, caring love for better and for worse. It symbolizes both the covenant relationship that God has created and your own personal entry into that covenant with each other and with God. 
So God has created marriage. He's put the basic rules. And when you get married, you are freely, of your own free will, entering into that covenant that God has designed. And in that covenant, you have a complete unreserved gift of each other. And that is what sexual inter intercourse is to symbolize, is that total self-gift to each other. Whether, whether there will always be romantic fireworks, there's no guarantee of that. Well, I, th I think number four is a very good way to look at it. Because a lot of people will say, oh, they're in a loveless marriage. Yeah. When he's describing love as different than just romantic. Correct. Love. True love, as described in the Bible, is self-giving, sacrificial love. Mm -hmm. Not the romance novel type uh -huh. love that you hear people talk about today. Yeah. It needs to be said in connection with the fourth point, that although one cannot pledge that he will always feel well disposed to the other spouse, each does have an obligation to invite and nourish such feelings as much as is reasonably possible. Indifference, not hate, is the common opposite of love within marriage. So each spouse is obliged not to be indifferent, but to try to feel good about his or her spouse and to encourage such feelings in return by, for example, thoughtful anniversary and birthday gifts and by frequent compliments. Right. I mean, you should try to keep the love alive. You should try to keep the emotions going. And somebody who simply just takes the other person for granted 24-7, it's rather sad. Each of the previous five points is basic for understanding Christian marriage and could be elaborated upon at length. But in their brevity, everyone capable of entering marriage should easily be able to grasp them. Well, we've hit just about an hour of time, and I think we're at a good spot to, to, to stop for tonight. Um, the book is Sex and the Marriage Covenant by John Kipley. I heartily encourage all you people out there on YouTube watching to, to get the book yourself so you can read it, study it yourself, and uh, it's, it's radical, but it's so well thought out. That I just, I'm just amazed. So well thought out. Almost 400 pages. He is going to consider every aspect of human sexuality. And he applies the thesis statement to every aspect. And it's just so comprehensive. I love it. And when a person sees the whole picture, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful philosophy of human sexuality. And uh, it, it's, it's one that when you live it out, and I can say that Ann and I have tried to live this out from the first day of our marriage, it, uh, it really results in a very happy
So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the gift of our sexuality. Help us always to use it in such a way as to give honor and glory to you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have any questions, uh, the viewers on YouTube, uh, go to the comment box and type in your questions. And uh, in the next class, I will uh, try to answer those questions briefly at the beginning of class. Good night, and God bless.